the fall of man, the origin of sin. Read with me in Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman you gave me to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman." And between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed the cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The fall of man, the origin of sin, and flipping the problem of evil script. John Calvin will provide our introduction with his commentary on Genesis chapter 3's opening verses. John Calvin says this, Many persons are surprised that Moses, the author of Genesis, 
simply and as if abruptly relates that men have fallen by the impulse of Satan into eternal destruction, and yet never by a single word explains how the tempter himself had revolted from God. And hence it has arisen that fanatical men have dreamed that Satan was created evil and wicked, as he is here described. But the revolt of Satan is proved by other passages of Scripture, as we looked at in previous weeks, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. And it is an impious madness to ascribe to God the creation of any evil and corrupt nature. For when he had completed the world, he himself gave this testimony to all of his works that they were very good. Wherefore, without controversy, we must conclude that the principle of evil with which Satan was endued was not from nature but from defection, because he had departed from God, the fountain of justice. But Moses here passes over Satan's fall because his object is briefly to narrate the corruption of human nature, to teach us that Adam was not created to those multiplied miseries under which all his posterity suffer, but that he fell into them by his own fault. In reflecting on the number and nature of those evils to which they are obnoxious, men will often be unable to restrain themselves from raging and murmuring against God, whom they rashly censor, for the just punishment of their sins. Hear this. These are their well-known complaints that God has acted more mercifully to swine and dogs than to them. Whence is this, but that they do not refer the miserable and ruined state under which we languish to the sin of Adam as they ought. But what is far worse, they fling back upon God the charge of being the cause of all the inward vices of the mind. The design, therefore, of Moses was to show in a few words how greatly our present condition differs from our original, in order that we may learn with humble confession of our fault to bewail our evils. We ought not then to be surprised that while intent on the history he purposed to relate, he does not discuss every topic which may be desired by any person whatever. We must now enter on that question by which vain and inconsistent minds are greatly agitated, namely, why God permitted Adam to be tempted, seeing that the sad result was by no means hidden from him, that he now relaxes Satan's reins to allow him to tempt us to sin. We ascribe to judgment and to vengeance in consequence of man's alienation from himself, but there was not the same reason for doing so when human nature was yet pure and upright. God, therefore, permitted Satan to tempt man who is conformed to his own image and not yet implicated in any crime, having moreover, moreover on this occasion allowed Satan the use of an animal which otherwise would have never obeyed him. And what else was this than to arm an enemy for the destruction of man? Some have imagined that Satan, not being in subjection to God, laid snares for man in opposition to the divine will and was superior not only to man, but also to God himself. All, however, who think piously and reverently concerning the power of God acknowledge that the evil did not take place except by his permission. For in the first place, it must be conceded that God was not in ignorance of the event which was about to occur, and then that he could have prevented it had he willed and seen fit to do so. 
But in speaking of permission, I understand that he had appointed whatever he wished to be done. Here indeed a difference arises on the part of many who suppose Adam to have been so left to his own free will that God would not have him fall. It offends the ears of some when it is said that God willed this fall. But what else, I pray, is the permission of him who has the power of preventing and in whose hand the whole matter is placed, but his will. I wish that men would rather suffer themselves to be judged by God than that with profane temerity they should pass judgment upon him. But this is the arrogance of the flesh to subject God to its own test. The fall of man, the origin of sin, what we find in Genesis chapter 3 is Satan in the garden tempting mankind to sin. And Moses does not explain how it is that this serpent became indwelt with Satan or how that Satan, who once was Lucifer, the angel, became this evil dragon of old who God allowed to possess the serpent, a creature that God had created and pronounced good, and that God allowed to enter into the garden to speak to Eve. Nor is it explained how it is that Eve and Adam with her, without a sin nature, were in fact tempted. It is simply declared. It is declared. And the blame is rightly laid upon Satan and the blame is rightly laid upon Eve and then the blame is rightly laid even before Eve upon Adam who was to protect Eve and failed in that ministry that God had given him. And so we consider the fall of man once more We we remind ourselves again from James chapter 1, verse 13, where it says, Let no one say when he is tempted, no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Whether they be angel, Eve, or Adam, you or I, God does not tempt anyone with evil. However, that does not mean that God does not allow the temptation to evil, as he clearly did with Satan, and he allowed Satan to fall, as he clearly did with Eve, and he allowed Eve to fall. And he didn't just merely allow Eve the opportunity to fall, he allowed Satan to enter into that garden to tempt Eve. God himself did not tempt Satan, did not tempt Eve, and did not tempt Adam with her, but he allowed it, he permitted it, for his own glory, for the honor of his name. That is the testimony of Scripture. We know of God's character that he is holy, holy, holy. We know from Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. We know from Psalm chapter 5, verse 4, you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. We know from 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Thus, while God permitted sin, God is not the author of sin. And we know that God is holy, holy, holy. His, per- his permission of sin, his allowance of sin is for a holy purpose. And the greatest, highest, and most holy purpose 
in the cosmos, in any realm, heaven or earth, natural or supernatural, the greatest goal is the glory of God. The highest and most holy goal is that God would be magnified. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty is what the angels cry out day and night in God's presence, where the train of his robe fills the temple with his glory. That is our introduction, our first point, the deception. Verses 1 through 5, the deception. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The deception. The deceiver is afoot, Satan himself. The great liar is afoot, Satan himself. The father of lies is afoot in the Garden of Eden. And he comes to the woman. Notice he does not come to the man. He subverts God's order. God created Adam first, then Eve. God gave Adam authority over all creation, including Eve. God entrusted all creation, including Eve, to his care for his provision and his protection. And here Adam fails and Satan succeeds in subverting God's design, going around Adam to Eve. Now imagine Eve, right? She's familiar with God's creatures, but here comes the serpent, and the serpent is talking. That should have been alarming. If ever a serpent should come talking, dear ladies, whether he comes in the form of a man or an actual snake, cry out for your husband. Do him that favor. Now, in this case, I think Adam was nearby, and he should have been very much aware But if a talking serpent comes on the scene, you should cry out for help, cry out for aid. But Eve takes it in stride and converses with this talking serpent. Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now the serpent is cunning, the serpent is wise, the serpent is called the angel of light elsewhere, a messenger of light. He is beguiling. So be careful in your judgment of Eve, as you think her a fool for talking to this serpent. The serpent is wise for evil and powerful being, not all powerful, in no way matching the omnipotence of God, but he is a powerful, beguiling, treacherous, and deceptive being. And he comes to the garden saying, has God indeed said? That is the methodology of Satan to question God's word. Has God said? And Satan has found tremendous success in that methodology with mankind from the garden until this day. He is continually questioning the word of God. It always starts with a question. Is that what he really said? Is that what he really meant? Is that what it meant in the original language? Satan comes with various forms of that question, but it always starts with that question. And then he progresses, we'll find. But before that, Eve answers, verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. 
So the conversation is started, but mind you, when Satan starts the conversation, it's going in Satan's direction. Don't converse with the devil. Verse 3, But of the fruit of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. So yes, we may eat of the trees, but not this one, this one. And this is the singular command of God, the singular prohibition of God. You may eat of it all, except this one. And the day you eat of it, you shall die. You shall die. Now, mind you, they, they live in a perfect world. They live in a place where there is no death, for it is sin that brought death. So even that is a foreign concept to them, but they must have understood what it meant. Eve clearly had received that word of God from Adam to her. Adam was faithful to deliver it. Eve recounts it to the serpent. Verse 4, Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. And so he begins with a question, has God indeed said, pushing back on God's truth. And then he advances to an outright denial, to a complete rejection. You will not surely die. He entirely convolutes and rejects God's word, God's warning, God's command, and assures Eve that she will not die. No, you will not. Verse 5, For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Not only will you not die, God knows that He is withholding from you this wonderful benefit that you could enjoy. Some commentators speculate that Eve may have considered this talking serpent to be the product of that fruit. That perhaps the serpent of the garden that has the power of speech ate of this fruit and gained the power of speech. And thus the serpent knew of its benefits and offered them to her, a woman created in God's image, and that perhaps through this she would ascend to become like God, which is in fact what he is saying, is he not? The serpent is saying, if you eat of this, you'll become like God, knowing good from evil. And if you recall the devil's fall, Lucifer's fall, to become Satan from Isaiah 14, from Ezekiel 28. Lucifer wanted to be like God. This is the original sin of Lucifer repeated with mankind. Which is why the goal of the Mormon church is satanic. Their goal is that men and women would become gods. It's the original sin. The original sin both of Lucifer himself and mankind. As Lucifer came to the garden to tempt mankind with that very sin. And hear me, that sin is being perpetuated all over the planet right now today by men and women who want to be a God unto themselves, rejecting the one true God and becoming a God unto themselves. Mind you, a puny God, a God subject to emphysema and cancer and fire and auto accident and COVID. So Lucifer comes in the form of the serpent. Satan comes in the form of the serpent to tempt mankind to... Follow him in his original sin of wanting to be like 
God. First, he pushes back on the word of God, questioning it. Has God indeed said? Secondly, he outright denies the word of God. He contradicts God, telling Eve, you will not surely die. In fact, there are tremendous benefits you're missing out on. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Let's hit the pause button momentarily. What is good and evil? How do we define good and evil? All that is contrary to God is evil. That's how we define good and evil. Without that definition of evil, you're left with arbitrary opinion. Individual opinion or societal opinion, but nevertheless, it's mere opinion. It's non-binding. It's changing. It's arbitrary. It is God himself, holy, 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 that defines that which is good and right and pure and righteous. And everything contrary to God, contrary to God's character, contrary to God's nature, contrary to God's commands, that is evil. And so Satan was lying and telling the truth. Indeed, you will know good and evil when you eat of this fruit. The best lie has an element of truth, does it not? You will not surely die. For God knows in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. John Calvin comments on Satan's method of deception. He says, very dangerous is the temptation when it's suggested to us that God is not to be obeyed except so far as the reason of his command is apparent. Do you get that? It's dangerous to obey God only so far as you understand His command. If I can understand the command, I'll obey. And hear me, parents, it's dangerous for you to teach your children that it's fine for them to only obey you if they understand why they should obey you. You're teaching your children to dishonor and disobey God if they don't understand why they should obey God. No, we obey God because He is God. And He is infinitely wise and we are finite, fallen, And so very often foolish. Can you not think back in your own life to how many foolish, I mean incredibly profoundly foolish things you've done? If you can't, ask your mother. Ask your father. Ask your wife. Ask your husband. Ask your children. Ask your neighbors perhaps. And some of them, maybe all of them, will be able to help you remember some of those occasions of foolishness. I can remember some profoundly foolish actions in my life. And how profoundly gracious God was to spare my frail life. It's very dangerous when it is suggested to us that God is not to be obeyed except so far as the reason of his command is apparent. The true rule of obedience is that we be content with a bare command, should persuade ourselves that whatever he enjoins is just and right. Whatever he enjoins, whatever he commands, it is just and right, and we obey it. It's great if he explains it. Fine. Thank you. But if he doesn't, that's okay too. He's God. We obey because he's God. He's the creator. We're the creature. And he is a God who has put his love on display in the person and work of Jesus Christ. His infinite love. He's a God we can trust. He's a God who is loving, a God who is holy. God is omnipotent. And so we obey whether or not we understand His command. Whosoever desires to be wise beyond measure 
Him will Satan, seeing he has cast off all reverence for God, immediately precipitate into open rebellion. Oh, you want to be wise, but you want to be wise in the ways of God. You want to be wise in the truth of God. You don't want to be wise in the ways of the devil. Wise to know good and the fullness of evil. That is a satanic wisdom that you will do well to leave off. Now we have a problem here with this talking serpent. Here's the problem. Satan's like to mock a talking serpent. You have a talking serpent. You believe in a talking serpent, a talking snake in the garden. They like to mock you and get you back on your heels. Don't ever get back on your heels. Press in. Don't back up. Press in. Oh, that's okay. Not only do I believe in a talking snake, I believe in a talking donkey. Yeah, the talking snake, the serpent, is in Genesis 3. The talking donkey is in Numbers 22, 28. The Lord opened the mouth of a donkey, and she said to Balaam, what have, you, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Can God make a donkey talk? The God who spoke the heavens and the earth into existence? The God who made you talk? What are you? What was Adam? He was dust. Oh, yes. God can make dust animate and make it talk. God can make a donkey talk. God can let Satan inhabit and dwell a serpent and talk. Nothing is too hard for God. He is omnipotent. But don't forget, the atheists, well, they delight in mocking the miracles of the Bible. They delight in mocking God, creating the heavens and the earth and all life in it by divine fiat. They particularly delight in mocking the talking snake of Genesis as a fairy tale. Remember, Big Bang cosmology and evolution are fairy tales for atheists. It is no strange thing in an atheist world for a serpent or even a donkey to talk. Atheists believe everything came from nothing. That's the atheist miracle. Atheists believe animate, complex life in which every cell contains a host of complex biological machines and interdependent, irreducibly complex relationship to each other spontaneously came from inanimate matter. In other words, atheists believe life came from non-life, which is a contradiction of the law of biogenesis. Atheists believe the vast amount of information contained in every single cell and every life form spontaneously organized without an information giver or designer, despite the fact that there is no known law of nature, process, or series of events by which information originates in matter and that all, all information leads to a mind. Information comes from intelligence. It doesn't come from chaos or accident. And every single cell contains a near infinite amount of information. Design pointing back to the mind of God. Atheists believe men are walking, talking, reasoning, moralizing bags of stardust. Atheists believe fish became philosophers. Atheists believe monkeys became men. Don't back up when atheists scoff at a talking snake in the Garden of Eden or a talking donkey or any other miracle in the Bible. Atheists don't have a problem with miracles. They just have a problem with the God of miracles. Don't back up. Press in. Declare the truth of God's Word, the authoritative truth of God's Word, and call them to get beneath their God. It's not your God. It's their God. It's the God. There is no other God. The deception. In Genesis 2.15, 
It says the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day you eat of it you shall surely die. That's God's command that Eve was referring to. Now you might recall, some make much hay out of it, I'll make just a little hay out of it, that Eve added a little something when she quoted this. She said, nor should you touch it or you'll die. I like that. Don't touch it even. If you don't touch it, you'll never what? You'll never eat it. You don't touch it, you'll never eat it. Some say that was the, the first, you know, legalistic addition to the command of God. I say, God says, thou shalt not commit adultery. And then he says in the New Testament, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. If it's not your wife, if, sorry ladies, if she is not your wife, you don't need to be touching her, Right? And if you never touch a woman that's not your wife, you'll never, ever, ever commit adultery. Ever. It's not going to happen. Right? So uh, if some want to condemn Eve for legalism, I I think um, perhaps, perhaps uh, the Lord waxed eloquent. In other words, spoke further elsewhere because he does very often say, don't even touch it. Don't even touch it. He said, don't touch my ark, the ark of the covenant. And some man, even a well-intentioned man, dared reach out and touch that ark. And he died. Don't even touch it. If you don't touch it, you can't eat it. If you don't touch it, you can't commit adultery with him or her. Don't even touch it. We know of Eve's deception, of course, from Genesis chapter 3, but it's spoken of in the New Testament. Eve is no fictional character Eve is not a type. This is not an analogy. Eve is the mother of all living. Eve is your great, 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 great grandmother. All of you ladies are daughters of Eve. And all of us men are sons of Adam. And we have inherited their sin nature. In 2 Corinthians 11 verse 3 it says, But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. He's not speaking of some analogy or some illustration. He's using the real serpent, the devil, and the real mother of all living, Eve, as an example of how we can be deceived by the same devil today and our minds corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, again, Verse 14, it says, And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel. Angel means literally messenger. An angel of light. And so I mentioned that earlier, encourage you to have some, some mercy, some grace for Eve. You think, why, why did you talk to a, a snake? That, you, know, you should have been suspicious from the get-go. And when he questioned the word of God, why didn't you just run away or rebuke him? And stand firm. Well, he's, he's deceptive. Don't dialogue with the devil, saints. Don't dialogue with the devil. Stand firm against him. The Lord Jesus quoted the word of God and rebuked him. And the devil himself tried to deceive Jesus by twisting Scripture. And he has succeeded in deceiving a great many Valiant men and women by twisting Scripture. And so do not dialogue with the devil, dear saints. In 1 Timothy 
chapter 2, verse 13, it says, Adam was formed first and then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. That's a commentary on Genesis 3. In the New Testament, we learn more about what happened in Genesis 3. Adam was formed first, then Eve. That we knew, right? And Adam was not deceived. Now, that wasn't clear in Genesis 3, although you, you could surmise it. Adam wasn't deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. She was deceived by the evil one, the deception. Satan comes to the Garden of Eden. He questions the Word of God, has God indeed said, and then he outright denies the Word of God. You will not surely die. And then he offers up that which God has forbidden, that which God has warned will bring death, and says, no, it will bring prosperity. It will bring that which is good. This is the deception. And the devil comes again and again and again to mankind. And he will come again and again and again to you in one form or another using that same methodology, questioning the Word of God, denying the Word of God, and then holding up what God has forbidden and what God warns you will bring death. The wage of sin is death. doesn't matter which sin it is. The wage of sin is death. It will always bring death to your heart, to your mind, your conscience, to your relationships, and to your soul. Believe God, saints. It doesn't matter which sin it is. The wage of sin is death, Romans 6.23. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ. So the deception. Secondly, the temptation and sin, verse 6 and 7. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings, pathetic coverings, coverings that could never cover their sin. What they had done could not be undone. And death was upon them. Guilt was upon them. That's why they felt the need to cover themselves. They had always been pure in heart and mind indeed. And now impure thoughts came into them, rushing into them. Perverse thoughts, ugly thoughts, hateful thoughts, all the sin that they had never known, now they knew. Satan, the great liar, the great deceiver, was telling the truth, but not how they thought. Now they knew good and evil because they were evil. They were evil. We won't get to it in this chapter and we'll cover it thoroughly in the chapters to come. But the sin nature that now corrupted them, so thoroughly corrupted them that it was handed off to their children and all the children that would come after those children. And the very first son, the very first born precious son of Adam and Eve became the first murderer. How tragic. Murder in the first family. Cain rises up and slays Abel. The temptation and sin. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, was the tree good for food? No, but she saw it as good for food because she dialogued with the devil. If you dialogue long with the devil, you'll see things too. You'll see lies as if they're truth. You'll see deception as if it's good or honorable or right. You'll see hate as if it's love. Sin turns everything upside down. You'll see love as if it's hate. 
That's the effect of Satan's lies. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that's the effect of the devil. That it was pleasant to the eyes. Oh, it's pleasant to the eyes. The Lord said, don't eat it. It'll kill you. You'll die. Oh, it's pleasant to the eyes. Oh, my. That which the Lord forbids, that which the Lord warns you, this thing's going to bring death. Don't look upon it. Don't desire it. Don't think, oh, that's wonderful. This is a good thing. It's good. It's healthy. It's nutritious. It's helpful. It's pleasant. The woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise. What happened then? Oh, when deception has a full grip on you, when you're under its power, then you take the fruit and you eat it. She took of its fruit and ate. There's a progression. First, dialoguing with the devil, considering his questioning of God's word. Second, considering his outright denial of God's word. Third, receiving his denial of God's word. Fourth, receiving his colossal lie, his convolution of God's word. Not only will it not kill you, it's going to help you. You're going to benefit. This is going to prosper you. Every man that commits adultery in the midst of it is a rule. This is feeling like a great thing. It's, this is seeming like a great idea until it rips his family apart, until it crushes his children, until his wife's heart is bleeding on the floor, until his bags are sitting on the porch, until he's paying the alimony every month, until he contracts a disease and brings it home to his wife. It's fool's gold, men. It's fool's gold, women. And that's just one example. Men and women get caught up in the lust of the flesh, and men and women get caught up in covetousness. If we could just have some more money, if we could just have some more earthly success, if we could just have some more earthly goods. But there's no true peace there. There's no true prosperity there. The rich and the famous as a rule are miserable. The rich and the famous as a rule are divorced. The rich and the famous as a rule have children whose lives are a train wreck and a heartache. The rich and the famous aren't immune to suicide, to drug abuse, and to overdose. No, no, it's a norm in their circle, a tragic norm. Wealth, power, fame, those do not bring peace or prosperity in and of themselves. So the woman saw the tree was good for food, that was pleasant to the eyes, a tree desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. It would seem he was there. It would seem he was likely to some level conscious of what was taking place between Eve and the serpent because she turned, it would seem. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. It doesn't say anything about her having to go find him, her crying out for him. She searched the garden. No, 
she gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves covering. Their eyes were open to their sin. Matthew Henry, the great commentator of old, says of this text that we are often betrayed into snares by an inordinate desire to have our senses gratified, or if it had nothing in it more inviting than the rest, yet it was the more coveted because it was prohibited. So this, this fruit, right? It was one fruit amongst a multitude the Lord had provided in the garden. It was the one fruit that was forbidden, but this fruit was forbidden. And so the forbidden fruit became the special coveted fruit. It became the fruit that was good for food, the fruit that was pleasant to the eyes, the fruit that is desirable. In our culture today, that fruit is sexual immorality. In our culture today, that fruit is homosexuality, lesbianism, and transgenderism. It is now, the forbidden fruit is now the glorious fruit that we're all commanded to celebrate. We're all commanded to applaud. And parents seem to be lining up to pervert their children and put Johnny in a dress and Susie in some work clothes and give her a butch haircut and call Susie Johnny and Johnny Susie. It's now a badge of honor to have a five-year-old that's transgender. There are no five-year-old children who are transgender. There are just perverted parents abusing their children. It is wicked. It is evil. But it's the forbidden fruit of the day. It's the special on the menu. The menu of mankind's sinful, willful rebellion against their Creator. Their eyes were opened. They knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. All of man's religion is mere fig leaves. All of our works that we would try to cover our sin with, mere fig leaves. It will not cover our sin. All our attempts to earn righteousness or gain righteousness through what we do to be pleasing to God are simply fig leaves. And when God comes walking to the garden, we'll be found naked and ashamed before Him. All our sin exposed. The temptation and sin. Third, the curse of sin. The curse of sin, verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So I said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The curse of sin. God comes walking in the garden, in the cool of the day. Mind you, God was not off on the backside of the cosmos, unaware of what had taken place in the garden. God is sovereign. Ephesians 1.11, all things work according to the counsel of His will. The Lord allowed this to take 
place. He was not ignorant of it. He came to the garden with full knowledge. When he cries out to Adam, where are you? It's not out of ignorance. It's to make a point. Where are you? And where was Adam? He was hiding from God, his father, his creator, whom he had walked with in perfect peace and love. He's hiding from him. He's estranged from him. He's at enmity with him. He is unholy and God is holy, holy, holy. And so he is in hiding and rightly so. But dear friend, you cannot hide forever. You cannot hide forever. You will be called to account just like Adam. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. We will all stand before God our judge. We cannot hide forever. We can't hide behind fig leaves. We can't hide behind the bushes over there. God will call you to give an account. Your heart will beat its last beat by whatever means God chooses. And you will stand before Him. Atheist, agnostic, Catholic, Muslim, professing Christian, whatever you are, you will stand before Him and give an account. And hear me, unless you are hidden from the wrath of God in Christ Jesus, unless your sins have been placed upon Christ and paid for at the cross, him pronouncing to Telestai, it is finished. The payment is paid in full. Unless Christ's righteousness has been imputed to you, you will stand before God naked in your sin. All your sins, every evil thought, every evil intent of the heart, every lustful passion, every covetous desire, every hateful thought, every hateful word, every gossipy hateful word, Every blasphemy you uttered, that in itself is a terror. Every blasphemy, using God's name as a filth word to express the filth of your heart, all of it laid bare before God. All of it. Unless you're in Christ. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. If you're in Christ, then you're covered with the blood. You're washed with the blood of the Lamb. Your sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. You're at perfect peace with God. You'll be welcomed into His presence as a child of God where you will dwell forever into the fullness of His love. But if you remain in the fallen state as Adam is here, you cannot hide forever. And on the day God is appointed, you will be called to account and all your sins will be naked before Him. And you'll be cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. The same lake the devil himself will abide in. The Lord God called to Adam and said, where are you? So he said, I have heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. The answer is not to run from the word of God. I heard your voice and I ran. That is not the answer. The answer is to run to God through the revelation of his word. This is how he has revealed himself to us that we might know him and love him. We might come beneath His grace and mercy in Christ. I heard your voice. I was afraid. I was naked. And I hid myself. We are right to be afraid. Sinners are right to be afraid of a holy God. As Psalm 711 says, God is a just judge and angry with the wicked every day. He's not just a just judge. He's an omnipotent judge. He's an omniscient judge. And he's made a place for sinners called hell. We are right to fear God. And yet in our fear, we should not run and hide. In our fear, we should run to him that he would wash us with the blood of the lamb, that he would cleanse us 
that he would impute our sin to his son and his son's righteousness to us through faith that we might be saved. Verse 11, and he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Of course, God knows the answer. He wants the man to confess it. Verse 12, the man said, The woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. Well, there's a confession for you. That woman that you gave me, what kind of confession is that? That's your finger pointed up to heaven to say, You, God, the woman you gave me. It's not just blaming the woman, it's blaming God. And that's what the atheist attempts to do today. When he says, there is no God, but if there was a God, if the God of the Bible was a God, well then he, he allowed sin. He allowed it. So I blame him. Oh, that, that's what Adam tried. But it doesn't work out. While God allowed it, Adam is culpable for it. He is wholly culpable and if your mind can't get wrapped around that, then you'll need to go to Romans 9 and wrestle with it. And we'll do that briefly in a moment. But at the end of Romans 9, your mind must stop. You must get beneath God and get beneath your own guilt and stop pointing at heaven and saying, the woman you gave me, and stop pointing at the woman, the woman, but point itself and own your sin and do what God commands what Jesus commanded in his first message, Mark 1.15, repent and believe the gospel. Side with God against yourself. Side with God against your sin. Repent, have a change of mind, have a change of heart and a change of direction. Turn from your sin to Christ in faith and believe the good news of the gospel that Jesus, fully God, fully man, was crucified for sinners, died and rose again, conquering sin and death on behalf of every man and woman will repent and confess him as Lord. We can't blame God. We can't blame the woman. We must blame self in an act of repentance because we are guilty. Adam was guilty. Verse 13, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. It's a blame game. Pass the buck. The woman you gave me, said Adam. God goes to the woman. Uh, the serpent you allowed in the garden. The serpent deceived me and I ate. It's true. It is true, but it's an excuse, not a confession, not repentance. What is this you have done? What does God say? What is this you have done? Hear me, dear sinner, and I'm a sinner with you, I know. God doesn't come to you saying, what have your parents allowed? What did your neighbor allow? What did that man or woman or girl or boy allow? What did your brother or sister get you into? Now, you know, God comes to you and says, what have you done? You are culpable. You are guilty. And you will stand alone before God as a sinner. You won't get to bring along your, your partners in crime. You will stand alone on your own two feet. Will you stand in Christ's righteousness by grace through faith? Or will you stand naked with all your fig leaves blown away and your sin condemned? The curse of sin. The Lord curses the serpent because of what you've done. You're cursed more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go. Every time you see a snake slithering through the grass, remember on its belly it should go. That's a reminder of sin. It's a reminder of the deception of Satan. It's a reminder of the fall of man. 
Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. So it's speaking both of the creature, the actual serpent, the snake, and the devil himself. And from that time on, the serpent would slither in the grass and nip at the heel of man, sometimes taking our very lives. But the man crushes the head of the serpent, literally the snake in the grass, and Satan himself. This is a prophetic word regarding the Lord Jesus being crucified. And while Satan entered into Judas and sent Jesus to the cross with a kiss, so Satan helped Christ go to the cross. Yet God superintended, God sovereignly directed, God in his perfect power directed all the course of history that Jesus Christ would go to the cross to crush the serpent's head. Sin is conquered. Satan is conquered. He is a defeated foe. He is loose for a time yet, oh yes, but he is a defeated foe and he will soon be cast in the lake of fire where he will dwell forever. That is the end of the dragon and his angels, the lake of fire. As in Revelation 20, verse 10, it says, The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Verse 16, To the woman he, God, said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. This is the result of the fall. This is the curse of sin, the judgment of God. I will greatly multiply your sorrow and conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. How tragic. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. The husband that would have ruled lovingly, graciously, now is infected with sin. The, the woman that would have gladly been beneath his headship and leadership now shall be resistant and rebellious against it. You shall desire your husband, he says. Your desire shall be for your husband. It's the same word in the next chapter. He talks about sin being at the door, desiring you to destroy you. And yet he shall rule over you. The husband shall rule. And he is to rule with love. He's to rule with grace. He's to rule as Jesus rules, sacrificially dying to self. But now the fabric of all society, marriage, the husband and wife relationship is corrupted with sin. And we all suffer for it. But by God's grace, as we walk in the light of the word and the power of the spirit, we can overcome that corruption and dwell together in peace. Verse 17, he said to Adam, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake and toil. You shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field and the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for dust you are until dust you shall return. Adam, who is to be the provider. Adam, who is to be the protector. Adam, who is the breadwinner by God's design, heeded the voice of his wife. God does bring correction on that. And men, listen, your wife is your helpmate by God's design. She is your first counselor. She is a tremendous blessing. She should have your ear and she should have your heart. But if her counsel is to contradict God, if her counsel is to follow the deception of the devil... 
then by all means you correct that and you lead her in righteousness. Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, we're not called to heed the voice of the wife. The, the prevalent idea of the day is, yes, dear, right? That is the standard of husbandly righteousness in our culture. Yes, dear. Men, that's not the standard for husbandly righteousness. Lead her according to God's command, according to God's word. And more often than not, she should be saying, yes, dear. Now, in so many trivial things and so many things that are the delight of her heart, the concern of her heart, we can gladly say, yes, dear. That's, that's wonderful. And if we blow it, we can gladly say, yes, dear. Humbly, right? But in the major issues of life, the direction and course of the family, we need to be leading. Adam failed to lead. Instead, he followed Eve into sin. By the grace of God, we need to lead in righteousness and call our wife to follow with us as we follow Christ. And by God's grace, you'll have a wife happily at your side, following after Jesus and calling the children to follow after Father as He follows after Christ and to follow after Mother at Father's side as they follow after Christ, walking in the light of the Word, rejecting the lies of the devil that are a multitude. Mind you, originally there was just one opportunity to sin, just one forbidden fruit. Now there's a multitude of opportunities. They're everywhere. And we need to navigate through this fallen world, this sin-affected, sin-infected, sin-filled world in righteousness according to God's design and God's counsel. The fall of man... The origin of sin was the title of this message. And so we have looked at the fall of man and the origin of sin. We haven't finished, and we need to spend some time on that next week. And so we're still in the deep end of the pool, saints. We're still learning to swim biblically, to swim theologically in the light of God's Word. And we'll come back next week to finish our study in Genesis 3 on the origin of sin. Let's pray.